This is episode two of the Tribal Malfunctions podcast, as read by its author, Chang Terhune, who also happens to be the guy wearing my pants right now. Chang Terhune. Tribal Malfunctions is a cyberpunk story set in Boston about 100 years from now, which would be 2016 if you were listening in the present time. Uh, so let's see. Chapter one, if you missed it, was kind of an introduction. I highly suggest listening to that as uh, these are sequential and it's a story and everyone will kind of uh, build upon the other, which is how um, narrative stories work. Makes sense, huh? Okay, so um, I'll give you a second to go back and listen to that. All caught up, good. All right, let us begin with episode two. We start with chapter two of Tribal Malfunctions. driving down an idyllically clean superhighway in the northeastern United States. Your car is a combustion engine-powered vehicle, one of the thousands speeding along the highway at any given moment. Suddenly, you see something bigger than the biggest car ever in your rearview mirror. At almost a hundred feet long, the behemoth and its brethren carries hundreds of thousands of tons all over the nation while spilling hydrocarbons and countless metric tons of petrochemicals into the air every single day. This would have been your life a hundred years ago, and it would have spelled the certain demise of most of the biosphere were it not for the bold vision of one man and one very unpopular president. Dr. Aldo Valerian's brainchild, the Wormway, is responsible for cutting greenhouse gas emissions down to a mere fraction of their previous output, while streamlining the way goods and freight are transported across the United States. By proposing the building of a massive network of maglev trains and their tunnels deep under the Earth's surface, Valerian is credited with not just saving the environment, but with saving the planet itself. But none of Valerian's audacious visions could have come to play were it not for the support and advocacy of the idea by President Aaron Lucas, born 1996, died 2049. President Lucas championing of the effort to literally bury America's transportation system under the surface and save the biosphere led some to call him the Earth's savior, while others called him the Antichrist. Many to this day still decry him as the man who killed the American dream. Join us on Alt News Front 5 as we take a look back at these two men and their bold plan to save the Earth and bring about a new era of technology, innovation, and industry in America. This excerpt was taken from a News Front 5 broadcast, November 5th, 2093. Chapter 2, An Age of Drones, Somerville, Massachusetts, 2119 A.D., 15 years later, after the Big Battle. Mr. Ray, Mr. Ray, please come bye-bye. The voice, peaked and clipped, rang out over the cacophony of the Holy Roller Garage and its 20 repair bays. Each was occupied by a mechanic blasting their favorite music as they worked. The various sounds blended into a buzzing din, like ambient noise from a casino in hell. 
all seeming to rise before gathering into an almost tangible cloud that hung below the ceiling in the middle of the garage where the lights didn't reach. Whenever he went to the upper rack, searching for a part amongst towers of dusty boxes, he'd wear whiteout headphones to block the dissonance that cluttered his ears like furious, hallucinating bees. That day, Mr. A looked out over the garage from his office to locate where this voice came from. Down along the garage's right side, the bays stretched out before him an avenue of steel and evercrete. Along the left side were storage racks, employee lockers, bathrooms, and the break room. At the far end were the big doors that haulers arrived and departed through after exiting the wormway, running under the east coast from free Canada all the way down to Florida, from duh to duh, as the old man used to say. Outside those doors lay the rambling yard where abandoned and junked haulers were laid to rest to be picked at for parts. Mr. A finally found the source of the noise. Down in Bay 11, a small, dark figure was jumping up and down, waving their arms, shrill voice begging for the boss's attention. Is this Monday ever gonna end? He asked himself. What? Manea said behind him. Haven't these guys ever seen an intercom before? He growled. I put him in, but they still expect me to hear them over all that banging and scratching. The machines ain't so loud out there, Manea said from behind her terminal. Machines, said Mr. A. I was talking about the music. He sighed and put his coffee mug down before rising from his desk, then brushed the crumbs from a dusty almond croissant off his lap and made his way out of the office downstairs to the floor. Holy Roller Garage had grown under his management. Fifteen years before, it held seven bays, and auto haulers had to switch from maglev suspension, used in the wormway, to the more demanding hover engines before navigating a warren of 19th century streets snaking around East Somerville to the garage. Hard work, schmoozing, and generous bank loans allowed Mr. A to more than double the size and staff, as well as get a direct link to the wormway built on the city's dime. In the 75 years before his ownership, it had been a small shop servicing everything from civilian vehicles to the big auto hauler rigs. If only you could see it now, thought Mr. A, picturing the old man sitting at the desk he now occupied. Mr. A, you come bye-bye, said the mechanic. It took a while for Mr. A to realize the mechanic, a recent immigrant, was in fact saying, You come by bay. The stressed pronunciation of his name, Mr. Ai, was favored by the mechanics, most of them new immigrants. Wendell was among the last of the Americans, a rare second-generation citizen, though his parents were from Haiti. Not that Mr. A could say anything about that, as his father arrived from a Philippine mountain village with a bit of cash in his pocket and a bit of Tagalog in his accent. Bay Eleven's mechanic stopped jumping and looked at Mr. Ray intently, pointing into the bay which looked like the other twenty. A few steps down into a cramped slot, where the mechanic sat at a grimy diagnostic deck under blue utility lights past which a short and narrow alley led into a recess below a hydraulic lift where the auto hauler's fat ass hung. What's up? Mr. A asked. The shit's broke. Excuse me? said Mr. A. The shit's broke. The mechanic enunciated this very carefully, as if he had been instructed to say it in an ESL class at the Charlestown Immigration Yard. Mr. A peered at him and shrugged. What's your name again, son? 
Choi. Just Choi? Yes. Sung Wook Choi. Mr. A nodded. South Korean refugee. He remembered reading about a crisis there from a couple glances at the Globe Online. A century or so before, North Korea's repressive military regime fell, which preceded the arduous journey to a recovering, then prosperous country. Now its southern half was engaged in its own decline from democracy to dictatorship and a ruined state led by a mad personality cult surrounding its leader. Mr. A sighed again. Okay, Choi. Now, slowly. What's the problem? The shit's broke. Choi spoke as if it were abundantly self-evident before shrugging and flipping his palms up. Mr. A shook his head, stepped into the tiny bay, then sat at the diagnostic deck. The cramped area had already been customized by Choi's addition to the collection of mementos left by previous mechanics. A picture of him and a pretty Korean woman in traditional garb with a small girl between them. A white plastic Soko Jesus cross hanging on a beaded necklace draped over part of the deck's display. A small Buddha statue sat atop the deck next to one of Jesus, Ganesh, Baron Samdi, and other deities Mr. A didn't recognize as he scanned the readout floating among the pictures and papers, half-empty coffee cups, and food containers from a nearby Sino-Cuban restaurant. Nothing leapt out at him from the lines of information the auto hauler spewed via the thick cable connecting it to the garage's network. Well, he said aloud, rubbing a thin swath of stubble on his chin. I don't see anything wrong here, but... Come and see. In bay. Choi pointed into the cramped slot beyond the deck underneath the hauler. All right, said Mr. A. He crouched to step under the low overhang. Choi followed, and the two men stood peering above into the hauler's open belly, flanked at either side by the wheels and rails that hugged the maglev tracks along the wormway. Auto haulers were built for a mechanic's easy access, with the engines accessible from underneath and cargo bays up on top. Three panels, once unbolted, slid away to reveal the vehicle's innards. Choi had removed the central panel and laid it to the side. Mr. A checked for any undue scarring, but it was as grimy and covered in road spew as any other he'd seen. Warning decals were obscured under a film of grease and dirt that he scratched out with a cracked fingernail. The car support arm shined brightly from the constant cleaning it got from contact with the rail. There, you look, up. Choi hugged his arms into his chest, hands jammed up into his pits like they were plugged in. Mr. A couldn't tell if he was nervous and eager to please or hopped up on some drug like Stepping Stone. He alternated looks at Mr. A and upward into the dark of the hauler's guts. Mr. A ascended the small ladder into the auto hauler's propulsion space with ease. He'd been a mechanic himself for years. Only his wife heard him boast he knew more about auto haulers than perhaps even the manufacturers. One thing was for sure, almost no one over five foot five made a good auto hauler mechanic. You needed to be small and thin to fit in under the chassis. Bigger men and women said you could do it all from a deck, but Mr. A always found missing parts and misdiagnosed issues in their work. With auto haulers, you needed to get up inside them and go at them like a virus. Inside the hauler's guts were a mass of wires, tubes, reinforced high-stress alloys, and a few stray megawatts of electricity. 
The tang of ozone lingered inside along with the smell of machine oil. Even after being allowed to cool down for an hour and grounded, electricity still hung around like a malevolent ghost. He shined the hanging light into the cramped bubble of the auto hauler's interior crawlspace. The bright yellow rectangular bogey frame hung overhead like the exposed bones of a massive leviathan skeleton. Inside the propulsion mechanism was mostly visible. Helium and nitrogen canisters nestled inside the frame, with the refrigeration units running like a bar across the frame struts. There were the superconducting coils behind radiation shields, their holographic warning decals morphing through 17 different languages every couple of seconds. The guidance gear and auxiliary support gear was right there at the back in place, as they should be. Mr. A gently poked around all of this, careful to avoid anything along the edges where coils could still carry a powerful charge. He'd seen mechanics fried from a careless hand placement while supporting themselves for a better look. Some of Holy Roller's bays still had a faint scent of cooked meat from recently departed mechanics. He continued his inventory aloud. I see propulsion coils, the springs, and I don't know, Troy, everything looks fine here, he said wincing at the sound of his own voice. It was too much like the old man's after only a few years of his passing. Too much wine and not enough time. I don't see a problem. Choi came from underneath to climb in, shrinking the space with potent B.O. and food breath to sidle up next to Mr. A. He grabbed the light to point it above the bright yellow bogey frame. See, he said, pointing up at the light. Shit's broke. He looked where Choi adamantly pointed. Oh, he finally said, cursing at himself. You mean the sheet. What I said, Choi mumbled. Sheet. Mr. A wondered if he was getting too old and cranky at too young an age. In his haste to get back to sitting around the office, he hadn't accounted for Choi's accented pronunciation. All along, he looked like the idiot foreigner boss. He searched his mind for the fragments of Korean that he knew. Mi an he yo, he said. Yong su he ju se yo. Oh he hat su yo. It's okay, said Choi, smiling. Mr. Ray peered closer into the space where above the hauler's propulsion system sat its tiny robotic driver. A hundred fifty years before, it might have been considered highly advanced, but what the average hauler had for brains was nothing more complex than a modern baby stroller or shopping cart. When a shipping company told it where to go, it drove itself and automatically went to the nearest shop when it was in need of repair. All of this was contained in an area about the size of a pizza box, bolted to the upper side of the chassis behind a golden sheet of prophylactic packaging, which in turn was behind a secure metal panel. This panel was currently missing from this rig exposing a torn golden sheet and the interior of the hauler's brains to air, but more dangerously, to the electrically charged interior of the bogey frame when the vehicle was in motion. How this thing hadn't shorted out and caused a collision down in the wormway, he'd never know. Did you do this? he asked Choi, regretting it instantly. He looked around for the shielding door. No, said Choi. Found this way. Right, of course. Mr. A stared up at the exposed brains until his neck ached. How this thing got here without derailing or worse, I can't imagine. Why did it come in? Say, need the service, Choi replied with a shrug. Mr. A nodded. 
The language barrier wouldn't help him any here. There was simply no reason for anyone to mess with a hauler's brain. Auto haulers were elegantly simple machines without any interface or persona other than a simple text menu accessed by a mechanic in a shop or dispatcher at point of origin or destination. BUs were smart enough to get safely from place to place, fix anything they could on the road, or get themselves to a shop if need be. For most of their life, haulers had very little contact with humans from point A to point Z. Built by robots, loaded by robots, dispatched by AIs, and unloaded at their destination depots by robots onto smaller trucks or trains. Were it not for the efforts of the mechanics' unions, 70 years before, repairs would also be handled solely by robots. Mr. A slipped down from the chassis into the slot, then slid over to sit before the deck. A few taps at the hollow keyboard, and he drew up the service ticket, then began to read. The hauler originated in New York, bound for the border in Maine near Free Canada. Mr. A found it odd the hauler was deadheading a term from days when humans drove empty trucks back from a destination before the age of drones. Very odd these days. Despite cheaper fuel and much greater efficiency than the previous century, federal regulations dictated full cargo on a hauler both ways. But here it was, empty as the ancient coffee cup next to the deck. He didn't recognize the name of the owner, either. Yukikor wasn't one of the usual customers— Holy Roller Garage had serviced auto haulers since they were first built, and Mr. A knew the name of almost every shipper and company along the East Coast. From duh to duh, he thought of himself, tapping at the keys. Yuki Kora's address was a P.O. box in New York, somewhere in the Seven Boroughs. What the frig, he said aloud. The hauler's manifest was a mess of garbled characters, most likely a product of its brain damage. He wasn't going to get anything out of it from this end. Choi squatted nearby, a lit cigarette in his mouth. Mr. A quit years before, but he gestured and Choi threw him the pack. Mr. A tapped one out and lit it, scowling at the screen's clock. 4.57 p.m. Okay, Choi, close her up for now, he said, puffing at the cigarette and feeling guilty about the rush it gave him. I'll contact the owners. Okay, Mr. A, said Choi nodding and bowing in the tight space. Mr. A smiled, and sorry about the trouble, he said, getting up from the deck and stepping up to the main floor. You're doing good work. Keep, keep it up. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Choi hopped into the vacated chair and tapped a few keys before jamming the cigarette into a bulging ashtray and scooting back up the slot. Mr. A walked back to the office as mechanics were closing up their bays, getting ready to go home. Most of the bays were already empty, Prepared haulers sent on their way. A few remained left open for work to continue the following day. He heard the whine of generators and screech of metal as a hauler behind him prepared to exit the garage and make its way back into the wormway and off to its next stop. He stopped at Bay 1. The chair in front of the deck was empty, though a steaming coffee mug and fragrant food wrappers indicated recent inhabitation. Wendell, he shouted into the dark. A shuffling and grunting sound emerged from within. Yeah, boss. Wendell was the sole exception to the short mechanic rule. He'd been at the Holy Rollers since the days of the old man, even before Mr. A arrived. The old man swore by Wendell until that day he showed up. 
Wendell took the new guy in stride without trying to best or compete too much with him. There was always work and room for advancement at Holy Roller for any mechanic as good as Wendell or Mr. A. Wendell climbed out and stood to his full six-foot-four height before stepping up to the main floor. He towered over Mr. A and smiled. She'll kill you if she sees you with that thing in your mouth, he said. I'm an adult, Wendell, said Mr. A. I'm the boss around here. Wendell laughed. Right, sure you are. Look, let me ask you something. Shoot, said Wendell, a smile revealing his gleaming white teeth in contrast to dark skin smeared with grease and hologram. You ever heard of Yuki Corps out in New York someplace? Wendell's brow furrowed as he stood looking around him, as if the name might pop up having been mislaid nearby before he shook his head. Nah, he said. Can't say I have. Why? That new guy, Choi, got a hauler in number 11 that's owned by a Yuki Corps from NYC. No info on them. We ever get haulers from them before? Don't remember. Maybe. I don't know. Mr. A scowled. Some right-hand man you are, he said, and then laughed. You asked? You're the boss man now. Shit, if you don't know, then who the hell does? Mr. A nodded. Wendell cuffed his arm gently. Look here. Might be a new company. May have taken over someone else's haulers. Bet you call them, you'll find out what's up. Yeah, said Mr. Ray. He dropped the butt to the floor and ground it out with his shiny boots. It's weird, though, right? Why, said Wendell. You're supposed to know every company has a hauler coming through here? There's thousands. Pretty much, but it's not that. It's just the driver's CPU was torn open. Totally exposed. Should have shorted out as soon as that happened. It's a miracle it didn't derail. Weird, said Wendell. Want me to take a look at it? Nah, not right now, said Mr. Ray. It's nearly five. Troy's going to close it up. I'll put it out in the yard until I hear back from Yuki Corp. Okay, said Wendell. Sounds good. I'll catch you later, said Mr. Ray, walking back to his office. He called over his shoulder. You have a good night. Yeah, boss man. See you tomorrow. When Mr. A entered the office, Minea looked up from her deck and sniffed. You been smoking? she asked, eyes narrowed in the blue of her display. No, said Mr. A, but everyone else has. You know how I feel about that, she said. Yeah, I know. And lying about it is even... Minea, Jesus Christ, I... It's worse than the smoking. Enough. I'm the boss here, remember? Minea rolled her eyes back to her screen. Mr. A dropped into his seat, then tapped out a quick stutter on the keyboard. He found Yukikor's contact info and dialed their main number. After four rings, it picked up. Hello. You have reached Yukikor. Please leave a message at the tone. Thank you. What? He said aloud. No menu? No persona? The beep sounded, and he spoke quickly and angrily, naming the garage, the hauler's ID number, and the reason for calling. He asked to be called back ASAP and hoped his tone would help drive the point home. He hung up and Minea shook her head. Why do you do that, she asked. Do what? Call them, she said. Who the hell does that anymore? It's the old school way to do business, girl, he said. She shook her head. It's the way your father did it, so no, enough already. Minea scowled, blew a lock of curly, dark hair off her brow, then shrugged. Well, it's five anyway, so I'm going home, she said, rising, then clicking off the display. Yep, said Mr. A, gazing through the hollow display over the mountain of papers on his desk. Night. 
In the distance, he saw the bland hull of the Yuki Core hauler emerge from Bay 11 as Choi led it with a hardlink remote leash magnetically attached to the bottom. Mr. A watched as he led it through the back door into the blue-lit yard in an empty spot among the hulks and junked frames. The bays shut down one by one and mechanics left for the night, each of them cheerily waving and shouting their goodbyes to him up in his office. Mr. Ray rose, then turned off the lights, finally heading home. He put on his hat, tugged it low over his ears and brow, donned his coat, then locked the doors and armed the fences. Without even thinking, he checked the streets at either end and the alley across from the gate, looking for strangers or cops, while careful to keep his head horizontal and not look above 20-degree angles. After waiting at the end of the platform where the light was dimmer, he then hopped a subway car at the nearby T-stop just as the doors closed. Mr. A wrapped his coat closer around him to beat out the chilly air and found a spot by a pole in the crowded car. He looked out the window where a couple heavy boys stood on the opposing platform, puffy black coats shining from fresh rain on the polished surfaces. They didn't seem to mind. With their eyes hidden behind dark wraparound lenses of their glasses, he couldn't tell if they were looking at him or just staring into the train. It took him a second to realize they stood in the open with no noticeable concern or weariness. A few of his fellow riders took note as well. It had been years since he'd seen a heavy boy out in the open. Fifteen years, in fact, since the day the gang ban was put in place, driving heavy boys, Kill or Be Killed, M223, and all other gangs into hiding for fear of the massive police crackdown following the Big Battelle. After a few seconds of their steady glare, he dropped his eyes to his shoes, praying the train would leave the station soon. It did, but not before he stole another glance at the pair, boring holes into the car's side with their hidden eyes. Home was a few stops away in North Somerville, a long ride on ancient train tracks, extending from the T's limited original reach a hundred years before, but hardly upgraded since. While the subway could easily get him to and from home to the garage, or Boston, within minutes, if he ever went to Boston anymore, the tracks were sold that going any faster than a crawl might derail a modern, high-speed train. Speaking of derailment, Mr. A thought of the zombie-like Yuki core hauler that didn't derail as his train lumbered towards his stop. He hoped there'd be a message from Yuki Kor's office in the morning to explain what was going on. Talking to a persona would be better than a dead hauler taking up space in the back lot in a yard full of them whose owners were late with payments or out of business. The car arrived at his stop and he stepped out into late autumn drizzle, up grimy iron stairs, out of the fluorescent lit station. Walking down a few blocks off Boston Avenue, he was home, unlocking the door of his modest house where three things hit him as he walked inside, the delicious smell of dinner in his nostrils, and two small children careening into his knees. Daddy! they shouted in chorus. He dropped the keys in a bowl by the door, then bent to scoop up the children. He gathered them in his arms and kissed them on the cheek, buzzing each with copious amounts of sound and slobber. They shrieked in delight as he carried them down the hall into the kitchen. Menea stood at the stove in her work clothes, the shorter, stouter shape of her mother next to her as the two women spoke vehemently in Armenian. Mommy, the children shouted, each competing to deliver the news first. Daddy's home. 
Minea turned without stopping her torrent of words to wink and blow a kiss at him before returning to the verbal battle with her mother. Mr. A put the kids down and they scattered off. He went up to Minea and kissed her. Thank you for popping a few mints before kissing me, she said. You only smell like half an ashtray now. You're welcome. He nodded at his mother-in-law, who returned the curt motion. Get those boots off before you go anywhere in this house, shouted the old woman. Mr. A grumbled and flicked the catch at the top of his boots. The laces undid themselves like magic fingers, speeding down the length of the boot as the tongue flopped out. He shuffled back out to the main hall and kicked them off into a corner. My house, he muttered as he made for his chair. Daniel, his five-year-old son, played in front of the TV while his daughter, Naren, watched a cartoon on the floating screen. Mr. A sat and gazed at his children for a moment, a smile playing on his face. You all washed up for dinner, he asked. Neither child answered. He snapped his fingers like a gunshot and the TV went off. Both children looked back at him, stricken. Go wash up, he said, smiling. Papa, said Naren, Doki Do is on. Do you want germs? Diseases? The dragon man loves children with dirty hands, he said in a sing-song voice. Both children jumped up and ran shrieking with glee at the prospect of being chased, but Mr. A stayed in the chair and chuckled. He waved his hand and the TV came to life again. He flicked his fingers up until the local news came on. He turned the sound low and eased back into the chair. Above the hollow display's square of light, he saw the picture in the miniature altar the old woman put together five years before. She was in it, younger and wearing a flowered dress. A smiling young man sat next to her, his wiry gray hair tussled by wind at the beach they were standing on. Menea stood between them with Daniel occupying her round belly. He'd taken that picture and always thought wryly how the old woman never requested he be included in the photo. You ever hear of Yukikor, old man? He asked the photo now. Taking over the garage seemed like the logical choice and ended up being one of the hardest things after the original Mr. A died. But once he took over, everyone took to calling him Mr. A as well. For Aristotle Aguilar, Menea called him Aris, even though everyone at the shop called him Mr. A, an honorific like Captain or El Jefe. It was the easiest path after the old man's sudden death. Aris was the best mechanic, adored by the boss and his daughter. He slipped into it like a fitted pair of exo-gloves and turned the holy roller into the Northeast's biggest auto-hauler garage, servicing the Eastern Wormway Corridor from Hartford all the way up to Free Canada. And they lived happily ever after, Aris said aloud. On TV, mention of the growing refugee population in New York played as his eyelids drooped. He caught a glimpse of heavy boys standing on a corner, defending their turf against police demanding they allow the most recent wave of Dutch immigrants from that drowning land to move into newly constructed tower blocks. The last thing Aris saw was the flash of a shock grenade against the shiny, puffy coat of heavy boy, and his eyelids dropped and he fell asleep. He barely woke after sleeping through dinner when Manea dragged him upstairs into bed. And that was chapter two of Tribal Malfunctions by Chang Terhune, as read by me, Chang Terhune, though my mommy calls me Charlie. 
I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a pleasure so far reading these. Uh, like I said, aiming to put these out about once a week. Um, tell your friends, tell your family, post it on the um, Worldwide Information Tube Web, or the Web Tubes, as our Canadian friends call it. And uh, yeah, I really hope you dig it, because uh, it's, it's a blast for me to do. So next week is Chapter 3 of Tribal Malfunctions. Be well.